Good morning, everyone, again. So, so nice to be together, and especially nice to see old friends and faces and new people as well. So, um, we are starting a new series. Just jumped ahead of myself there. Um, <clears throat> and it's exciting, you know. Like I said last week, we've been in the series since April. Uh, since April. So, so, to be starting something really new is, is great. Um, and as I mentioned in the, in the newsletter, it's going to be looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which um, in the Hebrew Bible are actually just one book. So we're treating them as one book because um, we figured that's probably the way it was meant to be read. Um, and for those who don't know, you know, there's a group of us at Urban who meet um, from time to time to, to pray and to um, plan and to, and to listen and to seek God around um, what we ought to be teaching, what we ought to be addressing um, through our sermons. And um, back in April, we at one of those meetings, we really sensed that um, God was um, inviting us or stirring us to, to get into the Old Testament a bit more, um, in particular to look at a particular Old Testament book, which we hadn't done for a very long time. And, um, and we felt that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah was particularly one that was just leaping off the page for us. So, um, so that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks, um, and we're going to be looking around those books as well. So those books come from a particular period of history, and there's some prophets that lived around the same time, Zechariah, Haggai, um, and also Esther. So a bit of a swirl of different literature there, and that's where we're going to be. So it's going to be fun. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned in the in the newsletter, you know, uh, or alluded to, that there's been a, a quite a long um, and really a pernicious trend in, in Christianity um, that seeks to suggest that the Old Testament is really that. It's old. You know, it's, um, it's tired, it's outdated, it's irrelevant. It's something that we sort of don't really need anymore. Um, <clears throat> there was a bit of controversy a few years ago when a very influential American evangelical um, preacher, pastor, um, essentially made that point. He, he said the, the Old Testament was really just a husk that we don't need anymore. Um, we've got Jesus, so, so um, the Old Testament's interesting for history, but not really useful for reading. And as you can imagine, he was publicly executed online for, for doing that, um, and in the typical way that happens, which is sad, but still, uh, I think, you know, the point was a bad one, wasn't it? Um, I think, and yet, the more I thought about it, I think the, the crime that he committed was actually to confess out loud the belief which a lot of people hold quietly in, inside. Um, the Old Testament is often perplexing. It's a strange place to be. Um, you know, we all have our favorite parts, like the Psalms and the Proverbs, um, maybe um, the great stories and life histories of people like Abraham and David and some of those epic stories, Moses. Um, and then there are sections of, of the prophets which are quite inspiring, bits of Isaiah, bits of Ezekiel, but a lot of the time when we wade into the Old Testament, we come across some really strange and unfamiliar and heavy um, stuff, you know? And it can, you know, if we're honest, I think there are large sections of the Old Testament which, which we kind of don't know what to do with. We, we, we think, I'm supposed to be inspired by this, but I'm really not feeling it. Um, they seem a million miles away from the kinds of questions we might be asking, the kinds of experiences we're living, um, even the norms of what we think is reasonable, good things, good behavior, good ways of treating people. So, um, you know, in Ezra and Nehemiah is no different. There, there, are, there are 
whole chapters that are just long lists of people's names, and you think, what, what am I doing reading this? You know, a, a, it's a roll call for a road trip that happened, you know, thousands of years ago, and how am I supposed to get anything out of this? Um, why am I reading this? How is this bringing me into contact with God? We will address that. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think all of us recognize that we earnestly want to be Bible people. You know, we want to read Scripture. We want to know it. Even though it's hard, we want to be good readers. Um, so it's not about not wanting to read it. Um, and we know instinctively that as we read Scripture, as we delve into it, we do encounter God in a special way. He does transform us through his word. But it's just that these texts often feel like like brick walls that we just slam up against and we don't know what to do. Um, so sometimes our journey with the Old Testament just ends when we hit one of those walls. We just go, you know what, I'm just going to leap over that one or I'm just going to get my helicopter and fly away to a part that I like better. Um, and, you know, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not trying to mm, condemn anybody for that. It's very normal. It's a very natural response. So it's not so much that people think the Old Testament is irrelevant or not useful, um, or needing to be removed from the Christian canon or anything like that. It's more that we find the Old Testament so strange, so perplexing, that we, um, that we essentially just ignore it. Um, so, so James Barr writes about this. He says, It would be more correct to speak not of a rejection of the Old Testament, but of an apathy towards it. A feeling that it does not matter greatly. A sense that while no doubt theoretical arguments for its importance can be advanced, the whole matter remains remote and lacking in immediacy. But the trouble with um, an apathetic relationship to the Old Testament is that, <clears throat> by all intents and purposes, it's the same as rejecting it, because when we ignore something, we don't engage with it, we reject it. As Matthew Schlimm writes, people are painfully aware of all the difficult issues the Old Testament raises. They recognize that these issues are too complex to address in the middle of a worship service. Sorry, we're doing that right now. But <coughs> they, they realize that people often feel stupid when the Bible doesn't make sense, as though there's something wrong with them for not knowing what's going on. And so it simply becomes easier to lay the Old Testament aside, to treat it as a stranger rather than to fix our attention on it. <coughs> Is anybody tracking with that? You don't have to raise your hand, but... Okay, we're going. <coughs> Yes, it's a, it's a very common thing. Now, um, we hope that in this series, by um, diving into a, a fairly complex part of the Old Testament, to be honest, and perhaps relatively unfamiliar, um, we can turn this stranger into a friend. So um, Ezra Nehemiah will certainly be one of our quirkier friends. <laughs> um, and sometimes with quirky friends, we, they need a little bit more work, you know, we need a little bit more patience with our quirky friends. If any of you have had a friend from another culture, um, you'll know that communication mishaps are pretty normal. We step on each other's toes without really realising it. Um, they're pretty normal too in, in reading a book like Ezra Nehemiah. And, um, and so for this reason, um, we, if we're to cultivate <coughs> a genuine friendship with with the Old Testament, we, we need to be patient. We need to be patient with this book, with this literature. Resist the, resist the urge to slam the book closed when it offends us or um, put it on the shelf and ignore it. Good friends, as we know, have disagreements. That's part of being a friend. <coughs> Excuse me. But if um, a friendship really matters, we don't let disagreements end a friendship. 
we stick together and we work it out. And um, so a good question that we can all be asking in the Old Testament in this regard is, have I, un- have I misunderstood what my friend is trying to say to me here? When we come to something that's hard, stick with it. And um, as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we might need, to, might need to question the message that we're receiving. We might even need to challenge it. Um, but we mustn't reject it or ignore it. <clears throat> and just in case I haven't convinced you enough to read the Old Testament, um, I've got a longish quote from Martin Luther, who wrote a preface to the, his translation of the Old Testament, which I think sums up what I'm trying to say in a much more articulate way. Thank you so much. So this is what Luther says. There are some who have a small opinion of the Old Testament, thinking of it as a book that was given to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. They think that they have enough in the New Testament to pretend to seek in the Old Testament only a spiritual sense. Origen, Jerome, and many persons of high standings have held the view, but Christ says, search in the scriptures for they give testimony of me. And St. Paul bids Timothy continue in the reading of the scriptures and declares in Romans 1-2 that the gospel was promised by God in the scriptures. And in 1 Corinthians 15-3, he says that Christ came of the seed of David, died and rose from the dead, according to the scriptures. And St. Peter too points us back more than once to the scriptures. They do this in order to teach us that the scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but to be read, because they themselves base the New Testament upon them and prove it by them, and appeal to them. As St. Luke writes in Acts 17.11, saying that they at Thessalonica searched the scriptures daily to discover whether it agreed with what Paul taught. The ground and proof of the New Testament are surely not to be despised. And therefore the Old Testament is to be highly regarded. And what is the New Testament except an open preaching and proclamation of Christ, appointed by the sayings of the Old Testament and fulfilled by Christ? But in order that those who know better may have incentive and instruction for reading the Old Testament, I have prepared this introduction and with whatever ability God has given me. I beg and faithfully warn every pious Christian not to stumble at the simplicity of the language and the stories that that will often meet him there. He should not doubt that, however simple they may seem, these are the very words, works, judgments, and deeds of the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God. For this is scripture. It makes fools of all the wise and prudent and stands open to the small and foolish, as Christ says. Therefore, let your own thoughts and feelings go and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds, which can never be worked out, so that you may find the wisdom of God that he lays before you in such foolish and simple guise, in order that he may quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies and to which the angel points the shepherds. Simple and little are the swaddling clothes, but dear is the treasure, Christ, that lies in them. So I'll just pray for us, (coughs) and then we can crack into Ezra and Nehemiah. Yes, Lord, we, like Pete said, we we pray, Lord, that um, you would open our 
minds and hearts in this series and even this morning as we engage with your word. We pray that we will discover you this morning, Lord. We thank you for the treasure that you've given us in your word. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Amen. This is a... I sort of thought the subtitle, Finding Faith in the Rubble, maybe that's an appropriate um, place where, where we see all of this is in the rubble of, of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's where these books take place. So um, why are we talking about this now? Why are we talking about Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, it's held together by this overarching theme to rebuild, the need to rebuild. And perhaps there's something in there for us. As well, I think, you know, why God is stirring us to look at this book with this theme of rebuilding. Why now? Now, I don't want to preempt all of that, um, <clears throat> but just to, just to raise it. But I'd like to let the text speak for itself. Let the text speak from its vantage point first before addressing ours. So the story begins in Ezra and Nehemiah in the context, like I say, of a people living in exile who have lost everything. Um, it's very difficult for us to really grasp the magnitude of the loss that the Jewish people had experienced in the exile. Um, if we back up a little bit in the story, it's important to appreciate that the entirety of the, the Jewish people's identity was based on them being descendants of Abraham. So way back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes promises to Abraham and he makes promises that Abraham will have descendants, more descendants than sand on the shore, more descendants than stars in the sky. And he also promises that they would have land. So the land was not just real estate for a Jewish person. Um, the land um, for the Jewish people um, <clears throat> and for all ancient people was sort of a means by which they were able to worship God. It was an extension of the temple. So the temple itself was seen as a place where heaven and earth overlapped. There's a place where one could come close to God, move into his presence. So the land was an extension of that temple. So to be Jewish was to worship God. That's what it meant to be Jewish. And to worship God was to be in the temple, to be near the temple. And to be near the temple was to be in the land. So it was all connected. Um <clears throat> And likewise, to be removed from the land, to be taken out of the land, was to be removed from one's Jewish identity. It was really to be one's fundamental identity to be destroyed, really. So it wasn't just an inconvenience. It was like an existential thing when the Israelites were taken into captivity. So in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire, which was the big superpower of its day, washed over Jerusalem um, and kind of like a tidal wave, just destroyed everything. The Babylonians raised the whole city down to the ground, destroyed the temple, slaughtered all the priests in the, in the sanctuary, killed the royal family, and um, marched all of the people off, the remaining people off to Babylon. There was this deep trauma in, in the Jewish psyche ever since. Um, <clears throat> prophets have been prophesying about this for a long, long time warning about this. Um, Jeremiah had seen it coming and he'd been warning the Jewish leaders about it for a very long time but, but was ignored. Um, and Jeremiah understood his 
prophetic vocation, his, his reason for existence as being um, a covenant enforcer, what Gordon Fee calls a covenant enforcer, or someone whose purpose in life was to always bring people back to the covenant, to remind them of who they are as covenant people. So um, to remind them that, they, that, that God had created a covenant and they had a role within it. So he was disturbed by the way that Israel's rulers were ruling, the, the um, way they were uh, ignoring God's ways, mistreating the poor, ruining the land, <coughs> worshipping other gods. And he knew that all of that was heading them towards exile. And that's why so much of his writing is full of complaint and despair, because he could see this inevitable outcome of what was coming, the unfaithfulness of his people. But Jeremiah wasn't only doom and gloom. Um, he also knew that even though the people were faithless, God would be faithful. So in the face of people's unfaithfulness, God would be faithful. And in the midst of exile, as exile was going on, as it was beginning, Jeremiah wrote a letter to the Jews who had already been taken to Babylon, deported to Babylon. And he wrote this letter to let them know that they ought not to lose hope in the face of what looked like a really hopeless situation. It's a fairly well-known bit of scripture. Um, so I won't read it, but if you do, it's in Jeremiah 29. But in a nutshell, he tells the Israelites that they're going to be in, in captivity for 70 years. They're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. But after that time, God himself is going to rescue them. He's going to bring them out of, of exile, bring them back into the land. So Jeremiah, as this is going on, as the siege is happening, he even symbolically goes out and he buys a plot of land just outside the city to say, we will be back here. We're coming back. Um, <clears throat> then across chapters 30 to 32, Jeremiah paints this picture of what life's going to be like when God returns the people back to the land. And it's like this big package of prophetic promises and hope. Um, freedom from slavery, intimacy with God, safety, joy, um, abundant wealth, deep spiritual renewal, even the end of sin and death itself. So Jeremiah sees this, part of this return as this a huge reformation of the whole cosmos and the whole human heart. So when we get to the opening pages of Ezra, we are absolutely primed for this. We are like ready to receive what's going to come. And so um, we're primed with anticipation as we read these words. This is the very beginning of the book of Ezra. And I'll read it out. It says, <clears throat> In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah. See? Then you're like, ah, the letter. The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also in writing, saying, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Let any of those among you who are of his people may their God be with them, go up to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods, with livestock, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the families of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, got ready to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors aided them with silver vessels, with gold, with goods, with livestock, with valuable gifts. Beside all that was freely offered, King Cyrus himself brought out the vessels of the house 
that the Lord of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. So, um, pretty exciting start, you know, what's coming. Um, <clears throat> what's kind of cool about this is that you see that little cylinder there? Um, there's some hard archaeological evidence from, from um, 539 BC that was found in Babylon talking about a king called Cyrus, detailing his desire that all the various people groups of, of the conquered former empire of Babylon should be repatriated to their homelands and help to restore their cities and temples. So verifiable outside of the Bible, um, this happened. This actually happened. Um, and that being said, um, the, the exact wording as you get in Ezra is not the exact wording on that thing. It doesn't specifically address the Jews. It was kind of a policy which Cyrus had for all conquered peoples. However, from the perspective of the author, um, who we can assume is Ezra, he sees that God's the one behind all of this. God's the one who's behind this turn of events. Indeed, from Ezra's point of view, it's the Lord who stirs the spirit of Cyrus. It's, it's God who instigates this return. And it's the Lord who stirs the families of Judah and Benjamin to act on the decree. So what's going on here, Ezra sees this as the second exodus. There's been the first exodus from Egypt in the life of the Jewish people, and this is like the second exodus. He stresses the fact that you know not only is God, is God sovereignly at work in guiding the hearts of these emperors and, and nations, but, <clears throat> but just as it was with Moses, as the people go out of Babylon, people are giving them gifts, giving them money, stuffing their backpacks full of gold and silver, exactly as it happened in, in Exodus. So there's this interesting intertextual connection going on, which I think they're doing deliberately to show, to build our expectation that this is, this is the big thing that we've all been waiting for. This is the big thing that Jeremiah spoke about. It's finally happening. So we're like kind of on the edge of our seats if we're if we're really au okay with reading the Old Testament, we're like, oh my goodness, this is it. It's finally happening, the, the fulfillment of all this great prophetic hope. Um, last week, Chris read from Isaiah 40, which, which speaks of the second exodus, which was this big expectation that the prophet spoke about. You know, um, it starts, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. So... They've been in exile, and, and they're hearing these words of Isaiah, you know, comfort, your, your, your service has been completed. And then a voice of one calling in the wilderness, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And on it goes. Um, so later in the chapter, God speak, uh, Isaiah speaks of God himself coming to Jerusalem, God himself becoming king and ruling and setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem as part of the second exodus. So for the Jewish people, they're very, um, this is their great hope, that God himself will return and reign. Um, in Isaiah 2, there's also this promise um, that in the second exodus, it'll be a reversal. So all of the nations of the world will stream into Jerusalem. It'll be... Um, like the whole, all of the Gentile nations will all come to Jerusalem to receive Torah, to receive the law, to, to learn about God's ways. 
says, in the last days, the, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest mountains. And many people will come and say, come, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. You know, in this famous line, you know, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So part of the big prophetic package is peace. It's no more war. It's, it's God being present with his people. It's God making his home among his people. Um, and another part of this prophetic package is also this expectation that this, there'll be a descendant of King David. Um, it says a root from the stump of Jesse would be filled with and empowered by God's spirit and that he would lead the people. It says he'll not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Um, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Um, the wolf will lie with the lamb, the leopard will lie with the goat, the calf and the lion, and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. So it's this impossibly big cosmic picture of God's kingdom being realized. So all this to say, when we're reading Ezra, we kind of need to get excited in a way. Like It might be a bit unnatural because we're like, uh, but it's like we open it and go, oh my goodness, this is it. This is happening. It's finally here. Um, expectations are kind of at fever pitch when we're reading Ezra. And um, <clears throat> so we're asking ourselves, is this it? Is this actually it? Is this the moment that God's going to restore the kingdom? Um and unfortunately, this morning we don't have enough time to do justice to all the important details of each chapter, but just to give a bit of an overview. Um, so in chapter one, which I've already read, covers the, the kind of the spiritual and political backdrop to what's going on. Chapter two describes this list of returnees and all of the stuff that they brought with them, all the stuff they were given on their way out. And then in chapter three, we meet... Um, we meet some of the priests who are going to be their lead role characters, including a guy called Zerubbabel, who, um, who is hard at work, working to restore worship in Israel, working to restore proper worship in Israel. So picking up from verse 8 in chapter 3, this is what it says. And this is the last big chunk of text I'll read. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, I'm sorry, um, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people, the priests of the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation stone of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy. 
No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. <clears throat> it's kind of a strange story, isn't it? Um, they've, they've, you know, God stirred up the people he's, through this remarkable thing. He's called them out. Some people have left. They've arrived back in the land. They're building the, they're rebuilding the foundation of the temple. They start worship, proper worship again. Um, and the young people who are there, they've never experienced life in Israel. They've been born and raised in Babylon. Zerubbabel means, um, I think, means born in Babylon or from Babylon. So there's young, this young generation have never experienced life in Israel. Never saw Solomon's temple. They were just riding on a high. They were like, this is amazing. We are back, you know, we are getting things right. But the older generation who had lived through the exile and who remembered seeing the temple, probably as children, were wailing so loudly that no one could distinguish the sound. Was this a happy moment or a sad moment? Was this triumph or was this disaster? So what are we to make of this ambiguous scene? Um, has the second exodus happened or not? Is all the prophetic promises happening or is it not? It's kind of the big question that runs through Ezra and Nehemiah, constantly saying, is this it? Is this it? I'm not sure. Is it? Looks like it, but hmm. Um, so we need to <clears throat> understand, uh, in order to really get to the heart of that question, I think we just need to understand a little bit about how prophecy works in the Old Testament. So... Um, while prophets in the Old Testament, we think of them primarily as telling the future, right? If we think about someone being a prophet, they tell what's yet to come. They speak to the future events. Um, but um, the content of the prophets in Israel was primarily about imminent events, things which were right in, on the immediate horizon. So there were issues that Israel was facing rather than really, really far off things in the 21st century, or the 1st century for that matter. So... Um, this means that often what the prophets are foreseeing um, is, is now in the past for us. So when we read the prophets, we're actually reading their f what they foresaw, but for us it's past. Like the exile, like the, like the return to Jerusalem, like the birth of Jesus, all those prophecies were about things which are now behind us, but they're in front of them. So the question is, do the Old Testament prophets have anything to say about the future, about our future? Or more bluntly, you know, is there any value in reading the prophets and prophecies <coughs> that were written to ancient Israel when they're not written about us? And I think, you know, while it's true that, that many of the prophets were speaking about events that were right on their immediate horizon, these events are sort of embedded within a larger, a larger horizon. Um, they were seen in the backdrop of a, you might call like an eschatological vision of, of the end of all things. So, um, and sometimes when we're looking at things like that, it blends in together. So a bit like a mountain range here. You know, when, we, when we're standing and looking at a mountain range, we see all of it, you know. We see every layer of it going as far as our eye can see. And it almost is this big panoramic view that we see everything. But we don't, if we were in a plane or in a satellite looking down, we would see these great big distances between each peak. So... It's both true that, we, that when the prophets are seeing something, they're seeing something in their immediate view, but they're also seeing what's behind it and what's behind it and what's behind it. So it's both a kind of 
now in a future dimension to, to the prophetic literature. So the young people in Jerusalem, <coughs> they, they were excited. They rejoiced because they understood that the prophecies that they had been waiting for were being fulfilled. They were back. They were setting up worship. It was happening. And they weren't wrong. That was actually what was going on. So the prophecies were being fulfilled in their midst. There was a kind of a second exodus going on. So they were almost looking at the imminent frame, you know. They were looking right up at the imminent frame of what was going on. Whereas um, the older people, I don't know, they, they wept because perhaps they just realized how far away they were from, from the big picture, how, how much further there was to go, how much further away from that promised future they were. Um, <clears throat> we're going to get into stuck into this book over the next few weeks. So... Um, this is a bit of a pricey over the, just the first three chapters, but I just wanted to talk before we close um, about um, what this might mean to us. It's important to kind of go, so what, you know? So the subtitle of this series is called Finding Faith in the Rubble. And in many ways, I think, you know, I think that could be an appropriate title for where we're at, you know, in terms of church today in New Zealand, we're kind of living in the ruins of Christendom, living in the ruins of when the church was privileged in society. Um, <clears throat> Christianity, despite what census data says or stats would say, Christianity is not on decline. Um, and Christianity is never on decline and never will be on decline. And I'm not just saying that as a kind of rah-rah, let's get excited thing. It's actually true. Um, I'm saying it in a theological sense. So the kingdom of God is never in decline. God's rule and reign is never on the back foot. It's always moving forward. It's always, it's always advancing. So God's kingdom is always advancing throughout the world, and it's unstoppable. But Christendom, that is the kind of privileged place that the church has held in society, that is crumbling. That's been crumbling for a while. So this privileged status of Christianity in Western liberal democracies is certainly crumbling. <clears throat> and in many ways, I think, I think for us, um, the practice of authentic Christianity, of real Christianity um, in cities like ours will be modeled a little bit like off the faith of these people that we're talking about the faith of exiles, the faith of people living amongst the rubble of what was, and rebuilding, rebuilding um, together. So it's not clear <coughs> if the dust has settled in terms of the crumbling that's been going on, in terms of the shaking that's happening in the church. Um, we can speculate about that. But I think we certainly, if we are real, we find ourselves practicing our faith in a, in a context, in a city, um, where... There are much more dominant religions, ideologies, etc., out there. So it's something which, as Christians, we haven't really had to live with before. It's a pretty new thing um, in, in a place like New Zealand to suddenly be not uh, in a privileged status. We really haven't experienced it in the Western Church since the times of the Roman emperors. So we're like right in some interesting territory in terms of church history right now. And I find it very exciting. I, I find it to be a very exciting time to be a Christian in New Zealand. I think it's a really wonderful time to be a Christian in New Zealand because I think our faith, as we, 
as it ferments in us, you know, as it, as it brews and becomes more rich and real, will make us stand out. It'll make us different. We'll be seen as something odd. We'll be seen as something both aberrant and strange from the cultural norms, but also attractive and interesting. Um, and it'll be all at once. <clears throat> so I think we need to learn wisdom. Like the Old Testament teaches us wisdom from the ancestors in the faith, the Jewish exiles. The Jewish exiles have already gone through this process and they've given us their writings so that we can become wise as we live our faith in the rubble of, um, of where we are today. So just a couple of, I think, encouragements before, before I finish. I think Ezra Nehemiah <coughs> will discover this, but we've already seen it a little bit today. Ezra Nehemiah reminds us that God is at work in history, that God is at work. He's the one who's speaking to people in prophecies and dreams. He's the one who's stirring the hearts of people. He stirs the hearts of Cyrus. He stirs the hearts of the people. So he is at work. Um, so I think a lesson for us to take away this morning is to remember the sovereignty of God, that God remains sovereign, and to look for his work. Where we might find it uh, in unexpected places, like who would have thought it would be a Persian emperor who would bring the people back, you know? <clears throat> Who would have thought? So where is God working? Who is he stirring in our times? It might even be uh, people who we would see as our natural enemies. Maybe God's stirring those people. I don't know. I don't have any enemies, I don't think, but uh, not as far as I'm aware of. Um, another thing I see um, kind of broadly in these chapters, these first chapters of Ezra, um, Nehemiah, <coughs> is, um, is this picture of God's people being appropriately dissatisfied, being appropriately dissatisfied with the status quo for themselves. You know, they, these exiles, they want to grow. They want to rebuild. They're not content just staying. They want to, they want to build up and mature and grow. You know, and that the older generation in particular are real enough with themselves to weep over what's been lost, you know. To, to weep and to mourn and to recognize that they have so much further to go. So I think, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to, I guess I don't want to skip over the pain of the historical moment that they were in or the historical moment that we're in. You know, it's kind of hard being a Christian sometimes. Um, you can be misunderstood a lot of the time, seen as a bigot or seen as an idiot by people out there. But, um, but so it's, it's not, it's not saying it's easy, but, um, you know, and, yeah, church attendance maybe is in decline in New Zealand, you know, um, and, and that's hard, you know, and we see the wonderful influence of Christianity and culture maybe waning, and that, that might make us feel worried, but um, <clears throat> I, think, I think all of that is just a, uh, an invitation to be real, you know, to lament, to, to, to weep like that older generation for what was, but also to be stirred for what, for what is. Because I think the third thing is... Um, that these chapters of Ezra show us that, um, that God's people are engaged. You know, like I said, they're appropriately engaged in working towards God's good future. They respond. God stirs them, but they respond. They leave the relative comfort of Babylon and go into the rubble of Jerusalem. It would have been uncomfortable. It would have been unglamorous and a pretty hard place to go. Out of Babylon, which is this cultural center, technological center, to leave Babylon and go to this wasteland where there's no infrastructure and to live amongst the rubble and say, well, we believe that God is 
given us this and that we are going to rebuild. So I, I guess a charge to, to be, um, yeah, to be like people like Zerubbabel um, and Shesh Bazaar, um, leading into God's promises, believing in God's promises, pushing towards God's promises, even pushing through fear and opposition. I think, I think these guys are very inspiring. Oh yeah, I forgot that. Um, just that little line from Samuel, you know, the way um, we can sort of say, "God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean forward and see if you'll come with me." Almost kind of the story of um, of of Jonathan and his armor bearer. You know, when they go up to against the Philistines, it says, Jonathan says, you know, let's go up against these guys. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So they pop themselves up and they have a go. You know, I think there's something about these exiles, which is like, let's have a go. You know, let's see what could happen. And I think finally, um, in the first three chapters of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, <coughs> what we see is a people who are prioritizing the rhythms of worship and gatherings. Now, as an exiled people in Babylon, they knew that their identity as as a people of God was fragile in the face of the sort of seductions of of, of Babylon. Um, they knew that that it would be hard going trying to maintain their sense of identity. So, the wisdom of Zerubbabel was not to go about beginning to build all the infrastructure, but to say first let's get the let's get the rhythms of worship in place. Let's get the spiritual practices in, in place that will help tether us to who we are as a people. That's the number one thing that they worked on, which is interesting. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because we're all here and we all believe in this thing. We all want to gather. We all, we all um, intrinsically understand when we're together, we are brought into God's presence in a special kind of way. But I just think there's something there around this, um, this habit of gathering together to reorient our lives back to Jesus, adoring him in song, um, opening the Bible together, praying for one another. Um, all of that helps us to stay rooted into who we are as the people of God. So that's, that's a little bit of a fly over the first three chapters of Ezra. And hopefully, um, hopefully enough to make you want to open it up and have a look yourself. Maybe this week you might want to flick through the book of Ezra. And remember, when you get to long list, don't, uh, it's not so much you have to read it sort of um, scrupulously, but it's to say there's something here for a reason, even if I don't know what it is. But yeah, have a go at reading Ezra this week.